through our series in this great gospel, Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. One day he got into abode with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke. And rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. The grass withers And the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Let us go to God and ask his blessing upon his word. Lord Jesus, we come to you at this time and we pray that you will give us a craving for your word. That we will read it, we will study it, that we will meditate upon it, and that we will live it out in our lives. Lord, we pray that you will show us from this passage Jesus Christ, who is the bread from heaven, that we may feast upon him and never hunger again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Wesley, the composer of numerous hymns in our Trinity hymnal, had accompanied his brother John Wesley on a mission trip to Georgia in 1735 with the intent of converting the Native American Indians. And after suffering much for the cause of Christ, and feeling that little was accomplished in their trip, Charles set sail for home in the fall of 1736. And while at sea, he was caught up in a violent storm. A storm so severe that Charles felt that his end was at hand. But rather than praying for the Lord to rescue him from imminent death, He prayed for faith to trust in God and to comfort the other passengers on the boat. What a prayer to pray at a time like that. Well, eventually the storm passed. The passengers survived and a number of them gave their lives to Jesus as a result. In response to this, Charles wrote the well-known hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, which we'll sing at the end of this service. 
And the words to the first verse of that hymn go like this. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Charles recognized that a violent storm at sea is a great analogy for life. We all go through difficult times, stormy seasons. The Christian life is not one free from suffering and difficulties. It is, in fact, precisely the opposite. But God places these storms in our lives in order to strengthen and grow us in our walk with Him. In Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, the disciples find themselves in a storm on the Galilean Sea. So severe is this storm that they believe that they are going to perish in it. Very similar to where Charles Wesley found himself. Jesus was with the disciples on the boat, though he was asleep. And after he is awakened by them, he calms the threatening storm. This passage reveals the greatness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it also reveals the comfort and peace that one can have in Jesus, knowing that he is present with us through the storms of life and will use them to mature us in the faith. As we continue in this passage, we're going to look at it in three sections. The first section will be the calm before the storm. The second, the cowards during the storm. And the final, the captivation after the storm. As Luke begins this account, he informs us that one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples. Now Luke is not concerned to tell us the precise time that he and the disciples went out into the boat, but it was after he had concluded his teaching to the massive crowds that we have just looked at in the previous weeks. And when we were looking at those passages, we learned actually from Mark's gospel that the crowd that he was preaching to was so great that, that he had to teach them from a boat. They had pressed in on him so much that he had to relieve himself into a boat in order to preach to the crowd. But concluding that teaching, he tells his disciples, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Once again, we are reminded of Jesus' humanity. For when they had set sail, Jesus fell asleep in the boat. Jesus was divine, and we will see that more clearly later in the text. But he was a man just like you and me, save sin. 
He had been teaching to massive crowds for no telling how many days and for no telling how many hours a day. Jesus was tired. So tired that he could even fall asleep on a boat and remain asleep in the midst of a terrible storm. How grateful we should be knowing that our God condescended and lowered himself in order to become like us in our humanity. Flesh and blood needed saving. Flesh and blood had sinned. And therefore, flesh and blood deserves God's wrath. And so, God the Son added to himself flesh and blood in order to bear the punishment for our sins. And so, just seeing here that Jesus was tired, Helps us to see his humanity, that he took to himself flesh and blood, and that he therefore can sympathize with our needs. Not only because he created us and our needs, but also because he has experienced them by virtue of his human nature. The tired Sleeping Jesus also teaches us the type of dependence upon God that we need to have. The sea is a dangerous place. The power and force of a body of water can be extremely overpowering. But Jesus gives us the perfect picture of what it is like to trust in the Heavenly Father. Of course, there was a calm before the storm, and yes, Jesus fell asleep while it was calm. But more than anything, I think he was the calm before the storm. We could even say that he was the calm during the storm, for he was sleeping right through the storm as well. He had absolute trust in the Heavenly Father in spite of the dangers that could come on this boat trip. And this behavior should be learned and emulated by believers. No matter how calm the seas of life may be, storms will come. And if we trust in our Heavenly Father, then we can have peace and comfort, not only when the waters are calm, but also through the storms of life. Well, the disciples did not experience this divinely given peace, at least not on this particular boat trip. Luke tells us that a windstorm came down on the lake and that they were filling with water and were in danger. And so how did the disciples respond to this storm? Well, they woke Jesus and cried out, Master, Master, we are perishing. In response to the storm, they had become cowards. Their faith was weak, which is precisely why Jesus asks them in this passage, where is your faith? They were not trusting in the Lord at this moment. 
The Lord of the universe had told them, let us go across to the other side. And they should have expected, therefore, to get to the other side. Yet they thought that they were going to perish. Now, we can't be too hard on the disciples. After all, the storm was extremely mighty. In fact, the Greek word for windstorm in this passage is also the word for hurricane. Matthew, in his account of this passage, uses the word seismos to describe this wind, which is the word for earthquake. In other words, the sea was quaking like an earthquake. It was a very violent Storm And the Sea of Galilee was prone to producing such storms as these. The lake sits lower in terms of sea level than any other sea in the world. It sits some 700 feet below sea level and it is surrounded by incredibly high cliffs. Around 2,000 feet high in places that overlook the lake. And at these heights... There is a cool, dry air. But when that cool, dry air is met with the warm, moist air that rises up from the the, the area directly around the sea, high-velocity winds can be produced. And as those winds travel down the mountains, they build speed until they hit the sea with a violent force. It had to have been a very mighty storm if Peter, Andrew, James, and John were crying out to Jesus that they were going to perish. We have to remember that these men were fishermen by trade. They were used to being on the water and and dealing with storms. And so if these men were afraid that they were perishing, we can be assured that it was a nasty storm. Another reason we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples is that they did at least turn to the right person. The manner in which they turned to Jesus may have been inappropriate. They should have trusted in him. Perhaps they should have been more like Charles Wesley when he rode on that boat and prayed for faith. But they did at least turn to the right person. They woke the Lord from his serene slumber so that he might save them from this severe storm. We should be understanding of the disciples because we too are often afraid when going through the storms of life. But as children of God, we should learn to trust God when we are going through these storms. They are meant for our growth in the faith. I love the way R. Kent Hughes puts it. He says, storms are God's way of bringing us into deeper grace. We must learn that there is never a need to fear. 
Because God is always present with us through the storm, just as he was present that day with the disciples. Jesus promised us. Just before his ascension into heaven in Matthew chapter 28, that he would be with us always to the very end of the age. It may feel at times that God is sleeping. We're not paying attention to the difficulties and trials that we are going through. But it's interesting to note in this passage that the cry of his disciples awoke him when the most violent storm did not. You see, not only is he present with us through the storms, but he also listens to the cries of his people. I'm reminded of the psalm that we read earlier in this service, Psalm 18, the psalm of David. Let me read again some selected verses from this psalm. And notice as I read them, how he uses water and sea imagery to depict his enemies in this passage. Here's what David writes. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. Then the channels of the sea were seen. And the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. What a beautiful, poetic description of how the Lord rescued David from the hands of his enemies. David cried out to God and the Lord drew him out of the stormy, troubled waters. Our God is present and listens to our cries for help. But beloved, we must understand that the storms of life are not just meant to get to the other side alone. We're not just to pray that the Lord take us out of these stormy seasons, but these storms are necessary for our spiritual growth. We are meant to grow through them, not get out of them. This storm was necessary for the spiritual growth of the disciples, and so they are for us as well. It was meant to strengthen their faith. After Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves, what did he do? He gently admonished his disciples. 
Where is your faith? He asked them. The storms of life are meant to strengthen our faith, to confirm to us that God is in control and cares for his people. We should not expect that the Christian life will be free from suffering and trials. In fact, Peter, who experienced this very trial there in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, wrote in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. We will all go through stormy seasons. One moment, all will be calm. In the next moment, a mighty storm will hit. Maybe you feel like the waves of illness are pulling you under. Or maybe you feel like you are drowning in financial debt. Perhaps you feel like you're being tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of despair. But if you are in the boat with Jesus, then you can always be assured that he is with you through the storms and that he is sovereign over whatever trial you are facing, just as he was sovereign over the winds and the waves that day. Someday we will all face the storm of death itself. But our Savior will see us through this storm also. For he has rebuked the enemy of death as well. God has not promised to keep us away from all of the storms of life, but we can be assured That whatever storm we face, our Savior is sovereign over it. And this assurance is actually pictured in this passage by the rebuking of the winds and the waves of the sea. This imagery begins, in fact, even at creation. As the Spirit of God hovered over the dark, chaotic waters at creation, Genesis 1-2. The waters there were pictured as an obstacle that God would overcome. At that time, the earth was without form and void. But God brought structure and order to the earth by a series of creative acts. One of those acts was making an expanse in the midst of of those chaotic waters so that the waters were separated from the waters. Genesis 1-6. That Jesus rebukes the sea in Luke chapter 8 should have drawn the minds of the disciples and our minds this morning to the creation where God employed his sovereign powers over the great waters and they obeyed him. 
I think the disciples must have picked up on this. For after Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves of the sea, the disciples, we are told, became afraid and said, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. This fear that they had is a fear of reverence and awe. A fear that is only to be had of God alone. They were captivated by what Jesus had just done. But this text is telling more than just that Jesus is the creator God who is sovereign over all of creation. You see, as scripture moves beyond the creation, the watery seas become associated with that which symbolically represents the realm of Satan and evil. At the Exodus, for example, Israel found themselves sandwiched between two great enemies, the pursuing Egyptians behind them and the obstacle of the Red Sea in front of them. They were caught between a rock in a hard place, you might say. But just as God did at creation, in fact, just as he did at the flood, he separated the waters of the Red Sea, allowing his people to pass through while the Egyptians became one with the waters as they drowned in the sea. The song of Moses In Exodus chapter 15, says it this way. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. You blew with your breath. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. This imagery is very similar to that of the 18th Psalm that we read earlier. Recall that David likened his enemies to the mighty waters. And when he cried to God for help, God saved him by rebuking the waters. Verses 15 and 16 again of that Psalm reads, Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. It becomes evident that God's rebuke of the enemy is often described as the blast of breath from his nostrils or from his mouth. God always rebukes and conquers His enemies. But our understanding of the symbolism of the sea would be incomplete 
if we did not briefly mention the prophecies of Daniel and the Apostle John. In them, the enemies of God are associated even more so with the watery depths of the sea. In these books, the sea is the realm from which the satanic beasts arise to wreak havoc upon the people of God. Daniel tells us that those beasts are terrible kings representing mighty kingdoms that make war against the saints. But God brings judgment upon these beastly kingdoms and gives the Son of Man and His saints dominion over the kingdom of God. John pictures this in the book of Revelation by describing the Son of Man as a rider on a white horse who has a sword that proceeds from his mouth. And this rider defeats the beast that has risen from the sea. And with the sword that comes from his mouth, he slays all those who worshipped the beast. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul describes the beast as the man of lawlessness. And in verse 8, he says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill by the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There is power in the rebuke of the Lord. By his rebuke, he defeats all of our enemies. And so we see that Christ's rebuke of the wind and the waves of the sea not only portrays his sovereign control over creation, but it also depicts Christ's power over the satanic forces of evil in this world. Maybe that was a factor in the fear that overcame the disciples in the boat that day. Perhaps they came to a greater understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ was that day as he calmed the raging chaotic sea. This fear was a little different than the fear that they had of the storm. They stood in the boat that day with the creator, redeemer, and defender of his people. The storm could only kill the body. But they learned to fear the one who could destroy the body and the soul. This was a lesson to strengthen their faith. Beloved, the raging storms of life are a result of the fall. Sin brought these storms into the world. But God sovereignly ordained it this way so that his glory would be revealed in the cross of Christ. At the cross, Christ rebuked him who accuses us on account of our sins. At the cross, the guilt of our sin was removed so that the accuser could no longer slander the brethren. But this blessing 
is one for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. For those who trust in Christ, he has promised to get them to the other side of the stormy sea of life. But it takes faith to get on the boat with Jesus. And you must continue to trust in the Lord as you face the different storms of life. These storms help us grow in our faith. But when we reach the other side, there will be no more storms to face. When Jesus returns and brings with him the new heavens and the new earth, all will be well. In that glorious place, the realm of Satan and sin will be no more. In Revelation chapter 21, John had a vision of the life to come. And here's how he describes it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will give us faith and the ability to encourage others through the storms of life. Lord, we oftentimes view these storms, I know, at least speaking on behalf of myself, that I desire to be out of them. But Lord, help us to desire to grow through them. For it is in this way that you are conforming us to the image of of Jesus Christ, our Savior. His life could be defined by suffering. And if we are to be like him, then we too must go through suffering. We pray, Lord, that you will help us as we share in the sufferings of Christ, that we might grow to be more and more holy like Jesus Christ, that we may be fit and ready to enter into the fullness of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to God's word this morning, please stand and let us sing together, Jesus, lover of my soul, number 508 in the Trinity hymnal. We will sing all verses concluding with the Amen.
Look up now and receive the blessing of your God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Let us conclude with the Gloria Patri, number 735 in the Trinity Hymnal. Thank you.